Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. July 15th, 1982 was a scorcher in the Pacific Northwest. Two 15-year-old boys were riding their BMX bikes across the Peck Bridge, at the western edge of the city of Kent, a suburb of Seattle. Traffic that day was just beginning to stack up on the bridge deck. Top 40 hits blared from open car windows. Olivia Newton-John's Let's Get Physical was a number one that year. Or the edgier Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. I Love Rock and Roll was at number three. Like the music, the 80s were a decade full of contradictions. Conservatism juxtaposed to an era of excess. That summer, former movie star, then President of the United States, Ronald Reagan was enjoying the second year of his landslide victory over Jimmy Carter in 1980. While First Lady Nancy Reagan coined three words meant to galvanize a generation of children to be good and just say no to drugs during a cocaine epidemic. And locally, the fledgling Seattle Mariners were knocking it out of the park, experiencing their best year since the franchise inception six years earlier. But that Wednesday on Peck Bridge, it was around four in the afternoon when those two boys were cruising without a care in the world. It was near the end of the workday, but for kids then, there was still time on the clock. It was the era of the latchkey kids, when the universal signal to get on home was the streetlights coming on, an age before computers and 24-hour television, when a kid's bike was their ticket to freedom. Hanging out at a friend's house, playing Atari, or meeting in packs at convenience stores for candy, lining up their quarters on the Pac-Man machine as they watched, anticipating their turn. Or maybe these boys were just heading back home as they made their way across the bridge after an adventure in one of the many green spaces in the county. Mid-span, the boy in front, his name was Galen, slammed on his brakes. Hey, I think there's something in the river. Both boys walked over to the ledge, peering over the metal railing. They looked at the green river below. Was it white shoes attached to a grayish-green sack? Whatever it was, it was hung up on a wood stump. Let's go check it out. They dumped their bikes at the end of the bridge, then beat a path in the high river grass toward the bank. Whatever it was, it was in the middle of the river. But the hot summer had mellowed the current to the point where it was only about two and a half feet at the center. So the boys kicked off their shoes and began wading into the water, arms swinging, Of course it became a game. Who could get to it first? It's a mannequin, Galen shouted. But just one step closer and he stopped, abruptly. 
He was near the mannequin's head, but he was looking at its legs, which should have been stiff. Instead, they were moving with the river's current. As he was trying to process what that could mean, it all came crashing down. It's a dead body, Galen cried. He shifted his gaze from the woman's legs to the blue jeans that had been tied around her neck, a detail that would never leave him. Her brownish blonde hair streaming out of the jeans, floating on the river's current. That image seared into his brain. Over the next 20 years, Galen and his friend would be the first of scores of locals to have their dreams invaded by nightmares over finding a victim of the Green River Killer. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Shadow Girls, an in-depth investigation into the victims of the Green River Killer. You're listening to Episode 1, Peck Bridge. It was around 4.20. The boys were shaky. They were relieved, though, as they heard sirens approaching, anxious for adults to lift the burden of what they found that day. A murder in Kent in 1982 was a rare occurrence. There were only three homicide cases from 1979 to 1982, and the body that the boys found in the Green River was one of them. A photographer would capture the mood at the river that day as first responders trudged the body up the bank on a metal Stokes carrier, loading the corpse into a gray morgue van. The slam of the door as the looky-loos on the bridge were just hoping to catch a glimpse. But as the body was driven out of view, it wouldn't be the end, but just the beginning. The medical examiner determined that the victim's hyoid bone had been broken. The cause of death was strangulation. When she had been pulled from the river, she had been naked, except beat-up white leather Nike knockoffs with a red swoosh and yellow-striped tube socks. Her sneakers were on the wrong feet. The Emmy would theorize that the jeans that had been tied around her neck were a means to drag her body. The strangulation ligature was thought to be the shirt that they found inside the seat of the jeans. The woman's left forearm had been broken. Had she fought her killer? And would he bear the marks of a struggle? The algae growth on her body indicated that she'd been in the river for several days. There were no missing persons reports that matched her description, so the Kent police released a description to the media for help in identifying her. She was described as around 25 years of age, 5 feet 4 inches tall, 140 pounds. They also included descriptions of her unique tattoos. A vine wrapping itself around a heart on her left arm, two tiny butterflies floating above her breasts, a cross with a vine on her shoulder, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle insignia on her back, and a work in progress. Above her lower abdomen, the outline of a unicorn, a mysterious, magical creature that would never be completed. A tattoo artist recognized his work in the paper and called police. Yeah, her name is Wendy Cofield. I think she lives in Puyallup with her mother. She's only 16. In fact, Wendy was just 15 years and three months old. Wendy Cofield would be the first found victim. There would be 48 others, young women and girls whose murders would rock a community for nearly 20 years in what would become the longest unsolved serial murder case in the history of the United States. The attributes of the so-called Green River victims would become too familiar. Female, mostly teens, with a supposed history of prostitution. Retired King County Sergeant Steve Davis. 
You need to remember at that time and even now today, you know, if you really talk to people and they'll get really honest with you, the business owner that the girl is working in front of, uh, I have to be careful how I couch this, doesn't really care about her history or that she's a victim or anything. He or she just wants them out, out from in front of their business. Right? They, she want, they want them gone, right? And that's where they are there. That's where the people just disappear. And when they're out there working the street, you know, they're constantly moving. They don't stay in the same area all the time. They go on what's called the circuit. And, you know, they can be anywhere at any time. They lose track with their families and they become ghosts, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, you know what the podcast series is going to be called? Shadow Girls. There you go. That's, that's a good one. And that's exactly what they were. And that's exactly what these women that you're going to see tonight, I think, are. You know, because they fall into the, the system. Now, now, nowadays, of course, they, they try and give them more help and things like that. They try and treat them as victims when they can. Right? They, there's, there's a lot of social services that come in and things like that. But the bottom line is they're still shadow girls. Shadow girls. Vulnerable people who desperately needed help. And as it would turn out, help they would never have the opportunity to find. Begging the question, time and time again, over those devastating years, would the Green River Killer ever be caught? And what of the deeper work, festering beneath the surface like an untreated wound? How many shadow girls would have to die in order for us to care about keeping vulnerable children and young women safe? And today, the realization that even though the GRK was caught in 2001, we still don't have an answer to that question. Cultural anthropologist, Dr. Deborah Boyer. I feel like part of the project that I'm working on is, you know, the six degrees of separation, where in the 80s, you mentioned the Green River Killer, the, the, the girls, and how they were, I mean, I, I will say my impression as a young person was they were bad girls, they were doing bad things, you didn't want to do that, or that could happen to you. You know, that was kind of well, the message. That is right. That's how society excuses this. They're bad, they're spoiled. It, it, it comes out of uh, a, a lot of cultural references and religious references that are 10,000 years old, but they become throwaway women. So you can do whatever you want. They become objectified, which is a term that we've learned through feminism, what that means for women in all walks of life to be objectified. This is the most extreme example. You can do whatever you want to an object. You can rape them. You can kill them. Nobody is really going to pay very much attention to that. What does that do when that message gets across because I heard it loud and clear and this has become more of a personal project in the sense of I had all this information during COVID with the Green River Killer and all the, the documents from the victims profiles and it just became so overwhelming and this isn't about me but just I'm kind of trying to share where I'm coming from so overwhelmed with so much of true crime the victims are women and I feel like it's such a popular genre because women don't get to talk about this stuff. Like stuff happens to them. And wherever you are on the spectrum, you know, whether you're, you know, on the street or you're affluent, it's a secret thing where you can't talk about it. That's a good way to put it, that it is on a continuum because the issue of prostitution affects all women. Even though we believe now we have advanced and progressed in our thinking because of of the women's movement and the feminist movement. We have to understand this is a very short time period. And the good woman has really stood on the shoulders and on the backs of the, of the women who have been, who were raped and murdered and violated and prostituted. That somehow we had to be separated. We had to create this pool of bad women to service normal men. And that is still reflected in the laws. I grew up in Washington state by the Green River near a valley of some of the most fertile farmland in the country. That sounds pretty idyllic, right? Well, if you're familiar with the Pacific Northwest landscape, you might be envisioning moody forests shrouded in mist and drizzly rain alongside a river whose current rushes over well-worn river rocks. And where I grew up, all of these things are true. But not at the Green River. The first thing I want to share with you about the Green River where I grew up, which is as true today as it was back in the summer of 1982, that it's not actually green. 
By the time she flows from the Cascade Mountains to my neighborhood, she was considered an urban river that meandered through the blue-collar bedroom communities of Auburn and Kent. And here her water was more of a dingy brown, and it was girded into a channel with high-sloping banks that were full of scrubby vegetation, grass, and thorny blackberry bushes. In the summertime, that reedy grass could grow over five feet tall on either side of the riverbank. As we would come to find out, it was the perfect rural place to hide an onslaught of unspeakable evil. If you Google Green River, the third entry down has a picture of the killer, and it says Green River Killer, American Serial Killer. But for a long time, I had come to associate the Green River of my childhood with what was then the longest unsolved serial murder case in history. I moved away when I was 17, and I sort of tried to avoid the area for a variety of reasons. Nearly 40 years after the murders began, a pandemic and a true crime podcast would call me back to the very bridge where that first victim was found by those teen boys so long ago in the summer of 1982, when I was just 10 years old. Honestly, it, it's, it's so weird for me to be back in Kent where I grew up, where I've you know basically spent my whole life trying to get rid of this area out of my head. And it's really just like 20 minutes away, you know? And yet, just having that 20 minutes distance between where I grew up and my life now has been everything to me. So coming back now and talking about all these things and everything has changed, you know, I mean, it's, it's changed and yet, you know, there's all this urban sprawl that wasn't there before. It was super rural when I lived here. Yeah, I have mixed feelings. It's just weird how a place can have such power over you and then you drive through it and it just is like any other place. November 2021 marked 20 years since the capture of the so-called Green River Killer, a serial murderer who stole the lives of 49 women and young girls, terrorized a community, and tainted a river which for many, like me, became synonymous with the spawning ground for these horrendous crimes. I'm a local, and I'm also a journalist, and the co-host of the Scene of the Crime podcast, a show that features investigations that are specific to the Pacific Northwest. Many true crime fans know the story behind the so-called Green River Killer. But if you're not familiar, the GRK was a serial killer who trolled the Pacific Highway South and Seattle's Aurora Avenue, hunting vulnerable teens and young women beginning in 1982 and continuing until his capture in 2001. These victims, more often than not, were referred to in the media as prostituted people. Their murderer strangled them, stripped their bodies of their possessions, and left them in the Green River and other hidden green spaces across King County for decades. What he was was he was kind of a, uh, I don't know, one of the prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant. Um, he was able to, he, he just stumbled on a method of, of picking up these girls, getting them in a position of vulnerability, and then strangling them. And he, he had them, his doggy style thing going on, and they were just totally helpless. When he got a hold of their neck, that was it. My co-host and I started the podcast, Scene of the Crime, in January 2020, and one of our very first episodes was on the Green River investigation, and it featured my interview with retired King County Sheriff Dave Reichert. Reichert was the first detective on the scene of the Green River in 1982. And I was happening to be walking by the sergeant's desk, and he had picked up a phone from the communications center, and they had told him that they found a body in the Green River near Kent. And as I was walking by, he hung up the phone, he says, Reichert, uh, there's a found body, and you know, in the Green River, go out and handle that case. So that's, I just happened to be walking by. <laughs> so that was my uh, 
fortune or misfortune, however you want to look at it. And Reichert says from the beginning, the case was personal. I went to that scene thinking I was going to be investigating the murder of one person. Three days later, uh, now have four young girls who have been strangled uh, and left in the Green River. Uh, we knew on that Monday. Uh, so first body was found on Friday, the other three on Saturday. On Monday, we knew. Well, that day, Sunday evening, we knew we had a serial killer. And uh, no, there was no way I was going to walk away. I mean, you're on a mission. You're, you're going to find the person who is responsible for this. Little did he know it would take almost 20 years to do just that. The Shadow Girls will continue after a word from our sponsors. And now, back to the Shadow Girls. When I was researching the episode for Scene of the Crime, I wasn't intending on doing anything more with the case than just the one episode, which we dropped in February 2020. But something Sheriff Reichard said stuck with me. The victims were people, young girls, who were in the human trafficking world. Back then it was called prostitution, and they were with pimps on Pacific Highway South in downtown Seattle. And the average citizen driving to and from work or to the shopping center, to the store and back home again, didn't see those little girls, although there were hundreds of them out there. They weren't visible to the community because, you know, part of it was they lived in an underworld, didn't want to be seen. But the other part is when they were seen, really the community didn't want to see them. They were there, but they wanted to pretend like they weren't there. Those two words, little girls, it was a description of the victims that I'd never heard before, which surprised me, considering I grew up near the epicenter of the case. It was then that I became aware that 33 of the GRK's 49 confessed murders were teenagers when their lives were stolen. As I was researching the case, something else kept surfacing. Memories of when I was a kid and later as an adult. I had gotten the message early on that they had somehow deserved it, that they were bad girls, and that's what would happen to you if you were a bad girl. The victims themselves may be helping their murderer avoid capture. Their lifestyle, their personalities, the people they associate with are into illegal activities or on the fringe of illegal activities. That is frustrated to some extent our attempt, if you will, to get information. If these victims were a middle class housewife, the suburban neighbor, if you will, it would be a wholly different type of case. This was something Sheriff Reichard and I discussed too. The underground, he picked the perfect victims. Uh, these were young girls who were vulnerable, obviously. They were young girls who were abused at home, ran away, lived on the street, abused on the street. And just uh, as a side note, they were also um, abused by the, the justice system uh, because they were treated as criminals rather than young girls who were, you know, that needed a lot of help because of where they came from. But... Imagine you're this young girl who has no self-esteem and you're on the street and you're selling your body. All that has to happen is, is a guy come up with his car, make a deal. You jump in, you drive off. There may or may not be someone standing there with you. There may or may not be a pimp that's watching over you. Uh, you disappear into the night. He, he, he rapes and kills the victim. The body is then put in a, in a wooded area or in a river. Um, areas that aren't frequently traveled. In some cases, the bodies of these young girls weren't found until six years later. But most of the bodies that were connected with the Green River were all uh, skeletons or, or severely decomposed to the point where trying to get any sort of a forensic evidence, especially biological evidence, would have been impossible. So if you, if you think of it this way, you know, the, the technology back then was... Uh, worked in his favor. And Reichert tapped into something that I had been thinking about after we dropped the episode on the Green River Killer for Scene of the Crime, something I couldn't get out of my head. The impact the case had on the community and me personally. I still meet people today who say, I know exactly where I was when you were on TV and you said we caught the Green River Killer, which I didn't really say, but everybody knew. 
because we only had them on four. Uh, and then a couple, three or four weeks later, we ended up with uh, three more charges on paint evidence. But that shows to me that, that, you know, the impact was sort of like, now there'll be some people not old enough to remember this, but in, in 1980, I think, right, Mount St. Helens erupted. Yes, um, yes. Right. I, I know, know where, exactly I was. where I was. <laughs> there you go. Um, and and uh, it's that same, it had that same sort of an impact on people when we made the announcement that he had been arrested, that that killer had been taken off the street, people who watched that, who heard that, who were here, remember exactly where they were when that announcement was made. And and that just shows you the power of, uh, you know, that that case held over the community for so long. I didn't know why then. It became an itch that I had to scratch. So I continue talking to people about the case which where I come from in Seattle is like Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation. I'll give you an example. My husband works at the headquarters of a popular coffee company near downtown Seattle, and I went to go grab lunch with him there. But first, I had to check in at the front desk, show them my ID, and then they would give me a temporary badge. The woman behind the desk recognized my voice from my previous work as a reporter at a popular news and talk radio station in Seattle, This was right around February 2020, just before the pandemic. I shared with her that I had left the newsroom to start a new Pacific Northwest true crime podcast. And her reaction was swift. I love true crime, she cried. And then the two women alongside her at the front desk started gushing over the news. And it was a great moment of camaraderie and friendship. And it wasn't necessarily surprising to me when there at the front desk at my husband's work, we all instantly bonded. It's common knowledge that around 80% of the true crime audience is women. Something Saturday Night Live keyed into on a recent skit. All right, I'm going to head out. Okay, have fun. What are you going to do? I don't know, just finish up work and relax. Okay, well, don't miss me too much. I will. All right, bye. Finally, he's gone. I have the whole night to unwind. And do a little self-care. The only way I know how. I'm gonna watch a murder show, murder show. I'm gonna watch a murder show. Netflix, Showtime, HBO, and Daylight. Murder show, murder show. I'm gonna watch a murder show. YouTube, Hulu, that's my favorite thing to do. This just got killed on a cruise in the Bahamas. On the surface, women gushing over true crime has always felt a little strange to me. I had read a slew of magazine articles that tried to kind of explain why women love true crime. And the common theme was that women binge true crime because we are so often the victims and we listen to true crime because we want to know how not to become a victim while we're being entertained, which always felt a little flimsy to me. As a true crime podcast host, I was doing tons of research, interviewing victims' families, survivors, detectives who worked those cases, and psychologists. And then along with my own life experience, I couldn't help but see a pattern coming into focus. I started to hypothesize that maybe some women binge true crime like me because they come from traumatic childhoods and were looking for camaraderie at a distance. And the feeling of, it's not just me. This feeling was confirmed anecdotally when the woman at the front desk at my husband's work, who I just spent 10 minutes gushing over true crime cases, handed me a temporary badge. And I was like, hey, you should check out our latest episode. We just dropped on the Green River Killer investigation. I felt like I had said something wrong as her smile wilted. And then she signaled for me to get closer with her pointer finger, so close that I could smell her perfume and shampoo. And as I leaned toward her, our eyes locked, and in a hushed tone, she confided, my best friend was murdered by the Green River Killer. 
Instantly, our voices became conspiratorial, as if we'd known each other for a long time as she recounted the loss of her beloved friend to the GRK. Not just what had happened to her friend, even more how scared she'd been during that time, worried that something similar might happen to her. And as she shared her story, something unexpected bubbled to the surface for me. When I was around 12 years old in 1984, that year alone they found over a dozen GRK victims, sometimes when I was home alone at night, I was terrified and I would keep a butcher knife close by, checking and rechecking the doors and windows, the slider. I had never told anyone that before, and up until that moment, I had buried it so deep, I had forgotten that it had ever even happened. That day, as if on autopilot, I said, hey, would you ever consider being interviewed for a project I'm working on related to the Green River Killer case? That too came out of left field. I wasn't working on a project. I had already completed the episode. And I'm not the type to get all woo-woo, but it was like a larger force had taken the wheel that I just couldn't quite explain. And I began collecting stories from strangers and friends who, like me, had feelings about what it was like growing up in the shadow of the Green River Killer for 30 years. And in March 2020, when the pandemic put the world on lockdown, something long dormant was activated within myself. Between my growing obsession with the GRK case and also my weekly podcast that required researching different investigations week in and week out, I really felt like I was swimming in a stew of depravity. And I realized for the first time that many of these cases had roots in my own childhood, toxic and manipulative domestic violence and gaslighting to the point of blaming myself for everything when I was growing up. And because of the pandemic, I was sort of stuck with myself and all these emotions. And like so many other people, as we were washing our cereal boxes with disinfectant and singing happy birthday long enough to wash our hands until they were chafed, I felt fear and anxiety And something deeper was coming to the surface that I just didn't understand. The fear of not being in control of my life or the health and safety of my family, it was insecurity that I hadn't felt since childhood. So while some people were baking banana bread or picking up a new hobby during the long months of isolation, I started sending off a flurry of public disclosure requests to the King County Sheriff's and Prosecutor's Office about the GRK investigation. What I was looking for at the time, I didn't know. I will say, reporting is like fishing, and I like to have a lot of lines in the water to maximize my catch. In my work as a reporter, I love uncovering wrongdoing, particularly when people in power try to get away with messing with people without power. I will admit I'm suspicious of pencil pushers, and I love outmaneuvering bureaucrats. And clandestine meetings with a source like Deep Throat is, for someone like me, better than money. An opportunity to get information on the GRK case presented itself. A source in the sheriff's office offered to let me borrow a box. Apparently, members of the Green River Task Force were given a box filled with a massive collection of DVDs that captured videotape footage of the GRK's five-month confession from 2003. Now, I had seen snippets in the past, but never the whole confession. I wanted that box to help me understand what Detective Reichert had schooled me on from the very beginning. Walk us through basically kind of like a timeline of the intensity of finding those first or five bodies in the Green River. And then, you know, how many years until the case kind of went cold and just however you want to, you know, chip away at at this 30-year saga? You know, everybody wants to know about the case, but they, uh, so I'll give presentations and they'll give me, you know, 20 minutes. So I have 20 minutes to tell you a story that took 19 years, right, to solve. That source offered to meet up with me during the pandemic to let me borrow their box. We met at a strip mall parking lot, open trunk to open trunk, 
masked up and trying to stay distant, but also trying not to be weird about it. And I'll admit, the circumstances of our meeting space gave the whole affair a little deep throat vibe. When I first started this investigation, which technically wasn't an investigation because the murders had been solved, I'll admit I was most interested in finding something that had never been heard before. But as I was going through the discs, I was gobsmacked by the harsh truth. Out of a box full of DVDs capturing five months of a killer's confession, which translated into over 9,000 pages of transcript copy, there were just two DVDs titled Victims. The two DVDs represented the investigation details related to the Green River Killer's 49 victims. And during the long months of quarantine, I began looking through the victim investigation files. They were organized into PDFs. Each victim had two to three PDFs each with roughly three to four hundred pages of documents per file. The first batch of PDFs that I went through were the murder investigation of Wendy Cofield. I scrolled through lab reports, transcribed interviews, detective logs. But there, sandwiched between hundreds and hundreds of investigation documents, I saw a photo of Wendy's jeans the ones that had been tied around her neck. In the background of the photo, you can tell it was taken in the sterile environment of a morgue. The close-up of the jeans took me back to the river. They were caked with mud and algae, and I kept thinking of Galen, the boy who had found her body. Galen and his friend were the same age as Wendy was at the time of her death. And his words kept repeating over and over in my mind, how he'd been haunted by the image of her blondish-brown hair streaming through the jeans when he discovered her body in the river. Seeing those jeans for the first time, I recognized the brand. They were James jeans. I had a pair of James jeans just like that when I was a kid. And the image transported me back to the summer of 1982, when I was 10 and we lived near the Peck Bridge. My favorite outfit at the time, the one I wore to Skate King on Friday nights, with a sparkly woven headband, a pink unicorn t-shirt, white leather Nikes with a blue swoosh, and my designer James jeans. I couldn't explain at the time why seeing the jeans that Wendy had been wearing the night she was murdered affected me so deeply. And I couldn't explain why I was spending so much time researching a case for no apparent reason during a pandemic was having an effect on me. White tears were in my eyes when I looked closely at the photo and saw in faded blue ink the initials WC on the tag. Putting two and two together, before Wendy was murdered, her file documented the fact that she'd been recently released from a juvenile detention center called Raymond Hall. Wendy must have inked her initials into the tag to make sure that no one stole them. They were just as precious to her as mine were to me. Wendy had been sent to Raymond Hall for petty theft, and I was reminded growing up the lore of Raymond Hall that preceded it. It was a place where local parents threatened to take their unruly kids if they misbehaved, if they weren't good. As I continued to scroll through Wendy's file... I stopped at the photo of a little girl. It was obviously Wendy. She was about two with a button nose and a precocious smile. She wore a white Tuesday t-shirt and Oshkosh Bagash overalls. Wendy's mischievous grin was centered around that plush black hat with a leather band around it. It was obviously her aunties or mommies. And in my mind, I hear her giggling and I wonder, what happened to that little girl? We'll be right back with the Shadow Girls after a word from our sponsors. And now, we continue with the Shadow Girls. When police notified Wendy's mother, Virginia, that her daughter had been murdered and that her body had been found in the Green River, Virginia would tell authorities that her daughter had been living in a temporary foster home because she was incorrigible. Virginia would also tell detectives that she had struggled as a single parent to support her two daughters. And as a result, they moved from one low-rent apartment to another in South King County. 
The situation was something I could relate to, especially when I found out that Wendy and her sister and her mother had experienced homelessness. During the pandemic, I had confided in my mom the anxiety I was feeling, and we started talking about how tough it had been for her as a single parent trying to raise two daughters on her own, like Wendy's mom. I became, after a while, I was totally depressed because I put myself and my daughters in this position of uh, going to McDonald's and brushing our teeth. And um, I thought, I I can't do this anymore. I think we'd been doing it for a couple months, right? It felt like years. I read in Wendy's file that at the low-income apartment complex where she lived with her mom, she had started to date a 21-year-old man when she was just 14. At some point, Wendy's mom, who was 36, began dating Wendy's boyfriend, and he would move in with them. As a result, Wendy moved out and began couch surfing at other apartments in the complex, drinking, doing drugs, and was sexually exploited. It was at this time that Wendy got into trouble at school, which led to suspensions. And inside Wendy's file, a friend claimed that before her murder, Wendy had confided in her that she'd been molested by a family member for years and that the sexual abuse began when she was just a little girl. Sexual abuse was a thread that ran through many of the victims' files that I would go on to read. Something I spoke with the Green River Task Force detective, Tom Jensen, about. It's a friend alleging it, and so it's not a first-person account, and there's nothing in the documentation to prove that that actually happened. But I have to wonder how many times You guys ran across that where these girls were molested by their own family or friends of the family. And how did you guys handle that? Well, I think I think it was probably the fact that a lot of these girls were were uh, were molested either in the home or by somebody else during the course of their 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 childhood, early, early adulthood is probably going to be a consistent factor in in most of these cases that the particularly the younger ones that left home that ran away for some reason. Now it wasn't wasn't always the case, but and it or it wasn't always documented. That's that's the thing. I mean you don't you don't know about some of these girls because uh they their background was that they were runaways and nobody ever asked had the chance to ask them why. Well, we didn't anyway. All we had to do was rely on people that may have known them. They were they were running away from something in, in a lot of cases. Then and what they ran away from uh, or what they ran away to was probably more volatile than what they ran away from. Cultural anthropologist Dr. Deborah Boyer, who has spent the last 40 years learning about sexually exploited adults and children in and around Seattle. Uh, we're both anthropologists trying to understand uh, the culture, the subculture, the meaning of this in society and the meaning to individuals. And we did do that, and we did document the the subculture, the rules, the beliefs, and so forth. But we also saw something else, and that was oppression. And you really can't just study people and publish without doing something about the kind of oppression and exploitation that we were seeing. And that just led me on a long march of doing work to develop services and policy advocacy on behalf of sexually exploited women and, and um, adolescents. We talked about how unfairly the GRK's victims were treated, not just in life, but in death. One of the particularly evil things that I've heard people say is that teens and young women engaged in what in the 80s would be referred to as prostitution or engaging in a street lifestyle, which is sort of code for, you know, drugs, prostitution, illegal activity. You know, your work sheds a light into this really unfair, unjust characterization. And I want to get to the root of that because in that um, website that you worked with on with King County, you talked about the link between childhood victimization and poverty. How, how would you describe that link and in all of your work? You know, it's not that these young girls wanted sex and wanted to party. There's, there's a whole huge deeper, deeper thing. Everyone needs to understand, first of all, that prostitution is violence. And you approached me about the Green River murders. 
And of course it took 40 murders really before anybody started to pay attention. And people need to understand the prostitution is violence and it is sexual violence. And promoters and buyers target the most vulnerable. Poverty is the biggest pimp that we have. Reading through Wendy's file, I could understand why she would be acting out and why she would be so angry at adults who had let her down time and time again. In early 1982, Wendy was arrested for theft, and the county's Department of Youth Services referred her to a psychologist in Seattle. The psychologist who tested Wendy would later write, quote, Because of Wendy's anger, chronic dissatisfaction, pessimism, and general discouragement, together with her meager coping skills, I suspect that she could well have self-destructive tendencies which could emerge when she feels highly upset. In Wendy's file, there was the transcript of the taped interview between her mother and Detective Dave Reichert after she's found out that her daughter has been murdered. He asks her if there's anything that she'd like to add, to which she replies, The only thing I can add to that is that these last three and a half years have been pretty rough on me because I've never been on my own. And all of a sudden, to be out there with a 13 and a half year old that's already got her own ideas in life, I wasn't uh, as much help as I probably could have been. But I did at least ask the courts and the state and counselors for help for her. And she turned it most of it down. The notes written in Wendy's file triggered memories of the many hours of therapy that I'd been through with my family when I was a kid. And like Wendy, how let down I had felt by adults. But the larger impression then and now was that sometimes there are good reasons why people turn down help. And it's not because they don't want it. This was something my mom and I discussed recently. I've done a lot of counseling, Carolyn. I know. I think that's why I've always been like... (laughs) Against it? Well, not against it. It's just that I remember Bill, our counselor. Well, that didn't turn out so good. I know, but, but let's talk about that because that was really traumatic for me. Like, Well, I, it was traumatic for all of us because Bill became really close to our family and he couldn't handle it. I know. It was another rejection. And a- another actually, rejection, exactly. By a man. By a man. And I felt like I had revealed what had happened to me because I felt safe to finally talk about it and then he like booted us as his clients i mean i just who the hell knows it was very unprofessional and very like you know you do sometimes i think that well he gave us another counselor i think i know but and then we quit well yeah i mean i think that therapy is amazing if you get a really great therapist, but I've read a lot of stuff. And we went to therapy a lot when I was a kid. I know you always tried getting us into therapy, and we did do a lot of therapy. But I Oh, that's right. We did it when we moved to Kent, didn't we? I've done therapy with my sister. I've done therapy with you. And I've, re- I've done a lot of reading on this since that there's a study. They bring kids in, and they're like, okay, here's two marshmallows. You can have one now, but if you save the other one for later you will get like 10 more marshmallows or you can just eat them both now. <laughs> and so what they did was is they had they found that the the affluent kids were more likely to save to save and then the poor kids were more likely to take the two marshmallows. And so of course they're like, yeah, of course, you know, the the affluent people can this is why they're successful because they can, you know, hold off instant gratification for, you know, for the long term and the poor kids just take what they can get, right? So that was kind of the, you know, lowbrow description of that study, right? Well, what they what they realized was that it wasn't a fair study in terms of like the poor kids, they knew that they'd had promises broken to them so many times in their lives that it was the smart move for them to, to take, take what the this two, to take the two marshmallows and at least have that than to hold out hope that they're going to get these other marshmallows because so often in the past they've been disappointed. Yeah. So I feel like that is such a great example for um, me where you got to know the layers. 
and sometimes therapists, depending on, you know, you got to get a good match. Yeah. And, oh, definitely. And the childhood trauma that we're just now learning so much more about childhood trauma and how it affects your overall health for the rest of your life. Like just because you went through this childhood trauma and you have this great life, like you can still have anxiety and health issues because you're always constantly in that fight or flight situation. Yeah. Actually, I feel like now I'm not in that fight or flight. I feel like I always was. Yeah. And now I'm not. Wendy was a child, and she was desperate. And desperate people make desperate choices, which makes them vulnerable. Something the Green River Killer knew only too well. Imagine you're this young girl who has no self-esteem, and you're on the street, and you're selling your body. All that has to happen is, is a guy come up with his car, make a deal, you jump in, you drive off, there may or may not be someone standing there with you. There may or may not be a pimp that's watching over you. Uh, you disappear into the night. But Wendy was smart. She was savvy. She tried to suss out people she could trust. Mostly girls like herself. Girls like this one on Pacific Highway, who police would later interview after her murder. Wendy walked up to me and she asked, you look like somebody I can depend on. I go, yeah, why? She goes, well, I've got this trick. And she hands me this, you know, this piece of paper with the make of the car and the license plate number, that it was a trick. And told me if she wasn't back in a half an hour to let everybody know. She said she would have given it to a pimp, but a pimp wasn't around. And, and if I did, she'd give me 10 bucks. And then she came back, and she gave me the 10 bucks. But this girl wasn't around the night Wendy crossed paths with the GRK. She was tragically alone. And her murder was just the beginning. Next time on The Shadow Girls. Less than a month after Wendy's murder police would be called to the Green River again, when, on an entirely unassuming day in an unassuming suburb, the hunt for a serial killer and what prosecutors would later describe as the tragic enigma in the history of our county would commence. The Shadow Girls is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Our producer is Brandon Morgan. We're executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio. Our post-production supervisor is Casey Wayland. Supervising sound editor, Victoria Cheng. Edited by Joey Jordan. <laughs>